0: Section 14 of The Reign of Queen Anne, Volume 2, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 34 Addison's Cato While the shadows of some coming events were thus cast before, as we have seen, One event in London deserves description for the literary interest which belongs to it and the political interest with which it came to be surrounded. This was the production at Covent Garden Theatre of Addison's Tragedy Cato. The play may be regarded as the boldest of Addison's poetic efforts. Its production formed a sort of epoch in the history of the English drama, The ambition of the author seems to have been to put a play upon the English stage which should not be a mere attempt at the reproduction of great Elizabethan drama and should be free from the influence of the Restoration period. Addison had been urged by many of his friends and admirers to revive high tragedy in a new form and had felt himself filled with courage and confidence for the attempt. The judgment of succeeding generations may be assumed to have dealt conclusively with the claims of Cato to accomplish such a purpose. Criticism has long ceased to dispute over the merits of Addison's drama, or even to concern itself much about the place it takes in literature, and it can hardly be said any longer to hold a place upon the stage. We are all now in something like agreement as to the qualities of Cato. We think of it merely as a poem cast in dramatic form, and thus regarded, it will be admitted by all readers of intelligence and taste to have many passages of great poetic force and beauty, many noble thoughts expressed in lines of thrilling and melodious eloquence, and some situations which a genius more attuned to dramatic work might have set forth with undying effect upon the stage. English drama was, in fact, at that time passing through a season of eclipse, and the genius of Joseph Addison had not found the spell that was to pack clouds away and welcome the new day. But there were many who believed then that a fresh and splendid era of English drama began with Cato, and no inconsiderable time had yet to pass before the general decision of criticism had decided that the work, whatever its exalted qualities, was a poem in dialogue and not a drama. There are some of us now who find Addison's poem, even when regarded merely as a narrative in verse and not as a stage play, less thrilling in its closing passages than the story told in plain prose by Plutarch. Nothing can be more simple than the manner in which Plutarch tells us how Cato made up his mind to relieve himself of life, how he argued out his case in his effort to justify himself to those around him, and to carry complete conviction to his inner conscience, how he read his Plato at intervals and to little purpose for the very passages he was reading were a condemnation of suicide— how he fell into sleep, and woke again at midnight, sent to the port for news, and saw his physician, remained awake until the morning birds began to sing, and their music soothed his mind, and brought him some sweetness of peace, fell asleep again, and after this interval of rest awoke only to carry out with a determined hand his tragical resolve. The reader, at least the reader of our generation who has read over the story as told by Plutarch, finds the closing passages of Addison's poem somewhat too grandiloquent, overwrought, and rhetorical to express the real dignity of the tragedy or to touch the human heart. But the public opinion of Addison's day found no fault on that account, and the play was regarded by most critics as a masterpiece of dramatic literature after Addison's time, an unfortunate Englishman, an inferior poet and pamphleteer, and a connection of Addison's who committed suicide, left behind him a vindication of his action in the words written on a slip of paper, what Cato did, and Addison approved, cannot be wrong. It is not easy to understand how this admirer of Addison had come to the conclusion that the author of Cato, must have approved of self-slaughter because he made the great Roman's death the subject of a dramatic poem. He might, as reasonably have declared, that Shakespeare approved of suicide because he wrote a play about Cleopatra and another about Othello. In this history we have less to do with the poetic or dramatic merits of Addison's play than with the political sensation which was created by its production. The fame of the author would have in any case secured a crowded house, but the fact that Cato and the announcement of the Treaty of Utrecht came on the public about the same time added a powerful incentive to popular excitement. Addison had identified himself with the policy of the Whigs on the subject of that treaty, and the rumor had gone abroad through London that the play was to be made in some form or other A means of invoking a condemnation of the measures which, according to the Whig estimate, had ended in a surrender to France of all the advantages won by Marlborough for England. All the leading Whigs were therefore determined to make the occasion one for a public demonstration of their sentiments and for the awakening of patriotic opinion against the conduct of the Tory ministers. Bolingbroke, however, was not a man likely to submit to any such manifestation without making an effort to turn it aside or to overpower it altogether. Never could political opponents have found an adversary gifted with greater aptitude for turning everything to his own advantage. He had become acquainted long in advance with the resolve of the Whig leaders to convert this modern version of Cato's tragic story into a popular demonstration, and he soon made up his mind that if mortal courage, readiness, and ingenuity could bring about such a result, the demonstration should be on his own side. He determined as the representative of the Tory party to point the moral of the tragedy in his own way and to the advantage of his political party. A brilliant and characteristic idea took possession of him, the idea of adopting the play as a poetic and glorified expression of Tory sentiments, and proclaiming it as such from the first rising of the curtain. When the night came, the theatre was crowded to excess. In the boxes on one side of the stage were the leading peers and politicians of the Whig party, while on the other side, to the great surprise of many in the theatre, both before and behind the curtain, Were the representative men of the party in power. In the stage box to which all eyes were soon turned, sat Bolingbroke himself, the man who was universally regarded as the author of the peace which the Whigs were denouncing as a national humiliation. In the pit, the enthusiasts of the Whig party were decidedly more numerous than their opponents, but there too, as in every other part of the House, the Tories contrived to have an effective muster. A phrase borrowed from the vocabulary of the theatre may perhaps be allowed on such an occasion, and it is therefore appropriate to say that the Tories, wherever they sat, took their cue at once from Bolingbroke. It is easy to understand how a temperament like that of Bolingbroke, delighting in artistic effects, and finding natural enjoyment in thrilling sensations, must have reveled in the opportunity given by so extraordinary a game as that which he was prepared to play out to the end. Bolingbroke's idea was to proclaim the Tory adoption of the play at the earliest possible opportunity. The Whigs, however, were a little in advance of his purpose, for they began their impassioned applause before a word had yet been spoken on the stage. The Tories, led by Bolingbroke, were equal to the occasion and followed the first notes of Whig approval by a vehement outburst of applause, which filled the whole theater with sound and seemed like the indignant answer to an insolent challenge. The Tory applause might be interpreted to mean You Whigs dare to claim this play, which is now to open as a demonstration on your side. We, the Tories, tell you that it speaks our sentiments, and that before long you and the whole country will learn the truth. The Whig part of the audience must have been a little put out at first by the unexpected reply given to their demonstration. The common and not unnatural idea among the Whigs was— that the Tories would set themselves as much as possible against the play from the very beginning, and that a sullen silence would probably greet the opening of the drama. A political leader less full of resource than Bolingbroke might possibly have thought that there was nothing better to do than to remain silent at first and wait for some chance of turning a scene or passage in the drama to his own partisan account— but the course taken by Bolingbroke asserted the claim of his party from the very outset to be regarded as the true champions of liberty, of patriotic devotion, and of national glory. The play, as it went on, lent itself with a curious felicity or infelicity to the objects of each of the contending parties. Cato abounds in stately generalizations And in vague grandiloquent sentiments. When the lines of the play sounded a lament over the fall of popular liberty, then the Whigs had the best of the applause and appeared for the moment to have scored a success. In the same manner, when the heroic traditions of earlier days were pictured as fallen into decay, again the Whigs had the advantage because the audience was reminded of an inglorious peace. But on the other hand, when Cato rose to denounce a military dictatorship, then the Tories carried all before them, for it was brought home to the consciences of many, even among the Whigs, that Marlborough had endeavored to force on the queen his claim to be appointed a military dictator for life. Likewise, when some line spoken on the stage could be interpreted as a protest against a policy which would allow the temples of the gods to be desecrated, the Tories, had once again the advantage, for could it be denied that Godolphin, when in power, had authorized the persecution of Sacheverel? But the final and crowning honors of the evening were decidedly won by Bolingbroke, and were the result of a bold and ingenious action which might be called a dramatic masterpiece. Booth, the famous actor, was performing the part of Cato, and when the curtain fell upon the last act— and the tumults of conflicting or at least rival applause were well nigh over, Bolingbroke sent to Booth a pressing invitation, amounting to a command, to visit him in the stage box. The great actor came at once, and then Bolingbroke arose, and in full sight of the whole crowded theater, presented Booth with a purse containing fifty guineas, and declared that such was but a poor reward for the service he had done to the state, by illustrating with such splendid dramatic effect the protest of liberty against a perpetual military dictatorship. This was the triumph of the night, so far as political manifestations were concerned, and even the Whigs themselves must have admitted that Bolingbroke had won the game. The event was in itself an effective illustration of the conflict in public opinion created by the Tory policy and of its culmination in the Peace of Utrecht. In our more modern English history, since the days of the great reform struggle during the reign of William IV, no event ever brought opposing political parties into such a condition of open hostility nothing that even the elders of the present generation can remember, no antagonism of political parties aroused in England during the Crimean War, or between the British supporters of the North and the South during the American Civil War, or between the home rulers and the anti-home rulers during Gladstone's later years, had anything like the same outward and visible effect upon social life as that which was brought about in England by the Treaty of Utrecht. Macaulay has described the state of things in some impressive sentences. The ties of party superseded the ties of neighborhood and of blood. The members of the hostile factions would scarcely speak to each other or bow to each other. The women appeared at the theaters bearing the badges of their political sect. The schism extended to the most remote counties of England. Of course, that schism had its centre of life and its greatest field of display in the metropolis. Perhaps the scene witnessed in the theatre on the night when Addison's Cato was for the first time produced might be described as the crowning ceremony of the great political dispute. Nothing seemed more in keeping with the whole spirit of Bolingbroke's career than the manner in which he turned the occasion to the account of his own party and transformed what might have been a political humiliation into at least the semblance of a complete triumph. The triumph was not to last long. Perhaps that transformation scene in the theater may be regarded as the culminating point of the Tory success. With that scene, the figure of Addison may be allowed to pass away from this history of the reign of Queen Anne. Addison's career indeed was not yet over. The poet and essayist had still much writing to do, and the politician had to fill high offices of state. Addison had some years to live under the reign of another sovereign. But the pages of this present work have not much more account to render of his literary or his political career. As a politician, that career was but a failure, and he can only be described as a statesman in the sense that he filled some high offices of state. His failure in political and administrative work has not in the slightest degree affected his literary fame. We remember the poet and essayist, and forget all about the Member of Parliament and the holder of high office, few eminent men have ever been more loved than Addison by posterity as well as by contemporaries. He seems to have well deserved the affection which was given to him, for the few faults which he had were nothing worse than weaknesses of temperament, and had no kinship with the ignoble qualities of greed and selfishness, of malignancy and envy and sycophancy, of corruption and hatred, by which even genius itself is sometimes degraded and made to seem ignoble. We have spoken already of the quarrel which Pope endeavored to fasten upon Addison, and it seems only too clear that the quarrel was altogether of Pope's making, and that Addison had neither given reasonable occasion for it nor showed the least inclination to keep it up. Pope had got it into his mind somehow that Addison was jealous of him, disliked him, and was in the habit of disparaging him, and Pope had an undue sensitiveness which left him easily open to erroneous impressions of this kind. The passage containing the supposed attack on Addison is in Pope's Epistle to Arbuthnot, and it describes Addison by the name of Atticus. Probably English literature hardly contains any rhymed passage of the same length From which so many quotations are so often made. Some of the phrases and the lines of this satire on Addison have passed into the ordinary discourse of modern social life and are reproduced every day in talk and in writing by many who have never known or troubled themselves to think where the familiar words were first to be found. How often do we hear, even still, of someone who can bear like the Turk no brother near the throne? Shall we ever cease to be told of some ignoble person who can hate for arts that caused himself to rise? One can hardly glance over the newspapers of any particular day without learning what it is to damn with faint praise, or without reading the censure of those who are willing to wound and yet afraid to strike, just hint a fault and hesitate dislike." There does not seem the slightest reason to believe that this disparaging picture bore any resemblance to Addison, but the phrases we have quoted and others from the same poem have unquestionably been applied in numberless instances during every generation since Pope's day to men whom the description fitted much better than it ever could have done in the case of Addison. The literary world and all who admire brilliant satire may therefore without great want of Christian charity feel glad that Pope flew into a passion with his great contemporary and composed those lines which have been used with happy effect for the castigation of so many offenders since the time when the author of the Messiah fell out with the author of Cato. There could be little doubt even from the evidence of the text itself that the satirical portrait was intended for Addison. The line which tells how this personage could, like Cato, give his little Senate laws, fastens the application on the author of the tragedy as if it were a label. Indeed, the story went that in the first version of the satirical poem, the name of Addison appeared without any attempt at concealment. The lines so often quoted who but must laugh if such a man there be, who would not weep if Atticus were he, were originally written according to this story with the name Addison standing boldly out where that of Atticus was introduced in the more recent copy. At all events it is quite certain that nobody at the time had the least doubt as to the object of the satire. There are various explanations given of the reason or the unreason of Pope's attack upon his former friend but the generally accepted account seems to be that Pope took offense because Tickle had begun a version of the Iliad after Pope had undertaken his own translation, and Pope fancied he had reason to believe that Addison had had some part in the preparation, or at least the encouragement, of this rival effort. There is no valid evidence that Addison had the slightest inclination to back up any attempt at competition with Pope's rendering of the Iliad, but from all we know of Pope's temper, it is easy to understand that it would not have required much evidence to fill the poet with the sudden conviction that somebody or anybody had done him an injury. The story of the quarrel will not soon fade from literary records as the name and the memory of some otherwise insignificant personage are kept alive through unending generations by a portrait which has come from the brush of an immortal painter, so the poor little story of Pope's anger against Addison can never quite fade from recollection, while men can appreciate a masterpiece of witty, eloquent, and melodious satire. Addison married the Dowager Countess of Warwick, and was thus made free of the society of those who used to be called the great. Some of his friends insisted that he never grew quite accustomed to the life which it thus opened upon him, that his shyness became more and more a trouble to him and a bar to his enjoyment of polite conversation, and that he often wished himself back again in the companionship which used to be familiar to him when he was a frequent visitor at some of the London coffee-houses. Others, again of his former friends, insinuated, it is almost needless to say, that he never cared much about his old associates when once he had been made habitually welcome to high society. There is ample evidence, however, to show that Addison was not in any way spoilt by his new associations, and it does not appear that his shyness was more of a trouble to him, in aristocratic circles, than it used to be among his literary friends his bohemian friends, as we should now call them. Addison had really many high qualities for a share in conversation, but these only displayed themselves with happy effect when he was in the society of those who thoroughly understood him and whom he thoroughly understood, who had ideas to interchange with him, and on whom he could always reckon for ready and helpful interchange of ideas." Where there was difficulty in carrying on the conversation, Addison was the last man in the world able to lend any help, and the greater the difficulty to be overcome, the more absorbing became the shyness which interfered with his efforts to overcome it. In public debate or on ceremonial occasions of any kind, this shyness rendered him hopeless and left him no chance of real success in political life but there is no reason whatever to believe that his introduction to what Disraeli called the Gilded Saloons had any harmful influence on his sentiments toward his old friends, or his capacity for exchanging ideas with new associates when he found the new associates congenial and sympathetic. Addison's closing years had an appropriate home in that Holland House which was for many generations associated with letters and art, with wit and humor, with statesmanship and philanthropy, with famous men and gifted women. His name shines as a star in that literary firmament which overarched the reign of Queen Anne. End of section 14.